Hello, I'm Peter Dunn, and I'm joined by David Willits, MP, the Shadow Secretary of State for Universities and Skills, who's visiting the University of Warwick to talk about his new book, The Pinch, uh, subtitled How the Baby Boomers Took Their Children's Future and Why They Should Give It Back. If I have it right, your central premise is that the economists have got it wrong about the baby boom. They say too many people, too much competition, it's going to be a hard life for them. You say too many people, too much power. The baby boomers are able to do too much. They influence our economy, they create the permissive society, they're even in charge of house price bubbles and economic boom and bust. It's all their fault. Is that what you're saying? I am indeed saying that the conventional wisdom was wrong. The conventional wisdom amongst demographers, sociologists, people like Richard Easterlin, was that being a big generation would be tough and it was better to be a small generation, you know, go through life travelling business class, not economy class. But the argument of my book, The Pinch, is indeed that in reality being a big generation has worked out to the advantage of the boomers. And one reason, I think, is kind of public choice theory, that it's given them a large amount of political power. But it's not simply the exercise of political power, I also think it's probably helped drive asset price bubbles that have helped them. Now, this is not a matter of the motivation of the boomers, but yes, I'm trying to uh, reverse the conventional wisdom and say that being a big generation has so far worked to their advantage. Of the many things you blame the baby boomers for, and you and I are, are baby boomers as well, so it's all our fault, uh, and the most curious one I found was savings rates and banking, that you suggested actually the current bank failures in the market turmoil may in part be due to the fact that baby boomers didn't save. One of the effects of being this very large baby boomer cohort has been an asset price bubble. And they clearly, one of the effects of their activities was to bid up house prices. And as I say, it's not that baby boomers are bad, this is just the consequence of being a large generation. And then that increase in house prices, instead of being seen for what it was as an entirely a paper transaction, left us baby boomers feeling that somehow we were richer. Indeed, this increase in the house prices was defined by the Treasury in some of their documents as the same as an increase in saving, and we converted some of this wealth into current consumption. And that's one of the reasons why Britain had very low rates of saving and very high propensities to consume over the past decade or more. I'm glad you say it's, it's not the baby boomers' fault or it's not anybody's fault. But if it's no one's fault, if it's sheer demographics that is driving all of these forces in terms of economics, culture, what's the point? Is there anything a politician or anybody can do if demographics are at the heart of it? Well, it is, there is something a bit like um, sort of Marxism behind some of this. And it's true that I guess part of the appeal of dem demography at the moment is it's the most powerful non-Marxist structural explanation of what's going on in the society and the economy. And I do think it has um, great explanatory power. Now, there are two extremes there. One extreme we get into is there are just iron laws of history and we're all completely passive and so observe it and so be it, which is the sort of extreme determinist end. And the, others, the other end would be just, well, the baby boomers have all chosen this because baby boomers are all sort of selfish. Neither of those is my view. And I, I do think that we should that part of what has gone wrong is a failure to understand the contract between the generations and that for a variety of reasons, in Britain in particular, that, that understanding has weakened, not least because we have very low levels of intergenerational contact and exchange now. And I hope, uh, as an optimist, 
that if you just get people to think about the interests of their generation alongside the interests of other generations, in other words, you bring this framework thinking into public debate, that itself could influence behaviour. Now, you may think that that's um, a naive and optimistic view of the world, but I think that's the kind of view of the world that people in a university would hold. In other words, it says ideas matter. I'm glad you talked about universities because uh, being here in a university, I'm bound to ask you about what you say about the higher education sector in the book. And I found it interesting for you to say that there had been a boom in higher education, the number of people entering it, uh, the, the range of opportunities, but yet that range of opportunities and that boom itself, you thought, if I got this right, has actually caused a fall in social mobility rather than made access and social mobility rise? Yes, uh, it is an apparently perverse effect, but I try to explain in the chapter on schools and social mobility what I think has happened. And again, I'm trying to explain things. I'm not making a, a judgment, but what I argue is that the, the big expansion of higher education, first of all, benefited the daughters of middle-class parents. Now, it's not a bad thing that uh, the, that generation of young women had education and employment opportunities that their predecessors not had. In fact, it was a very good thing. But my argument is that so the expansion expansion that was often assumed to be likely to help um, poorer working class boys ended up helping middle class girls. And then when you add in what the sociologists call assortative mating, namely the tendency of well-educated uh, women in good jobs to marry well-educated men in good jobs, you ended up with paradoxically, if anything, a concentration of advantage. And... Uh, the, uh, an opening up of a wider gap between the incomes of advantaged households and the rest. Now, these are just the kind of things that make the world go round, but the challenge is to explain why we've had declining social mobility, even when we seem to be having an expansion of education opportunities, and that's my explanation. Another area we, we've touched on education, which is a, a word which is loved by politicians of all shapes, is apprenticeships. Um, and you almost reminisce about how wonderful apprenticeships were in terms of passing on knowledge. But do you think the apprenticeships are, are past now, and that knowledge is now too fast and too changeable to pass on by that mechanism? No, I do think apprenticeships can still do a lot. And a part of the, the, the mindset, again, we've got to change in Britain, is that apprenticeships tend to have flourished before, more in the north than in the south, and more in manufacturing than services. I think there are many new industries, like, for example, the IT industry, with whom I've had conversations, because they recognise that training has not been one of their strengths, and the IT industry, I think, lends itself to apprenticeships, so we can do more there. Now, the reason why I wax lyrical about apprenticeships is that it's a good example of an intergenerational exchange, and it's a good example of how, in contemporary Britain, those are weakened, because although there has been a fantastic expansion of education opportunities, in the days before people stayed on at school to do A-levels, and before they went on to university, they would probably have left school at 16 and had an apprenticeship. And an apprenticeship is an older, more experienced person passing on his or her knowledge, normally in those days his, to the younger generation, a kind of silverback of the group, explaining things to the youngsters. Now, those 17, 18-year-olds are much more likely to be in environments, say, at a college, where they spend a lot of their time with their own contemporaries. And there is some evidence that one thing that's happening to our country is that we spend more time working with people of our own chronological age, socialising with people of our own age, 
in housing on estates with people of our own age. And so the intergenerational exchanges that help hold a society together appear to be weakening. Well, that's obviously wonderful for those people who may be able to get those opportunities. But one of your concerns is that the impact of the baby boomers has led to problems like youth unemployment. And you state that youth unemployment often leaves a permanent scar on that person's ability to earn uh, and to gain employment in the future. Can, surely nothing can be done about that. The baby boomers can't give something back because that scar is permanent or have you got some other mechanism in mind that could address that? Well, I, I fear it, there is a risk of a permanent scar and the reason, the evidence of course above all that is the excellent research by the Institute of Employment Studies here at Warwick which has is, which is assembled a lot of the evidence from previous recessions. I do think that this is a, an, a recession which again appears to be having an unusually... Uh, unbalanced effect on different generations because even through the worst of the recession employment amongst the over 50s has carried on rising and indeed reached a record high whilst employment amongst the under 25s has fallen to a record low. Now I would argue that one reason for that is this is the first deep recession where companies have had pension promises on their balance sheet when the pension deficit has been an issue and in the past they used to shed older workers and make them a charge on the pension scheme and that option is no longer available. Anyway, for whatever reason, this recession is has showing an unusual age bias to it. Now, I don't think we should, certainly not in, like me, when you're in politics, care about public policy, sort of pack up and go off and go home. I think there are things we can do and that's why um, I think it's important that we revive apprenticeships. That's why working with David Freud we're particularly focusing on welfare to work initiatives that are more flexible for the under 25s. It's also why this summer my party is proposing 10,000 extra places at university for the extra people applying for university. But the argument in the book is not sort of have a, a ten point plan. The book is essentially an explanation of what's been happening, seeing through the experiences of different generations and I'm afraid the evidence from the labour market and the same as the evidence from the distribution of assets and wealth, the same as the, uh, as the evidence on the generational impact on the welfare state is that you always find this baby boomer cohort, born roughly between 1945 and 1965, seemed to be doing quite well relative to the generation coming on behind. And that's the key point. I'm not you know, getting into motives, but there's a, there's a, in fact there's a host of reasons why it's happened, but I think it's one of the big social changes in contemporary Britain. And you're very, very concerned, as the Brooks own subtitle says, to make sure these baby boomers give something back, as you say, how the baby boomers took their children's future and why they should give it back. But surely, in your own book, you indicate a number of areas where already those baby boomers are giving something back. You talk about the fact that grandparent care is worth somewhere between 3.9 billion and 50 billion. You talk about the fact that mum and dad, as you put it, are paying for mortgages these days. Isn't a very system, the very demographic you talk about forcing that, those baby boomers to give things back? The baby boomers are doing a lot for our own kids individually and indeed I have in the book evidence that contrary to the conventional wisdom, parents are devoting more time to our children than we used to uh, and that a, a working mother now is devoting more time to her childcare of an under five probably than a non-working mother uh, 40 years ago. So there do, does seem to be a, a big change going on here where 
as families, we are investing more in our own kids when we have the resource to do so. But the challenge here to the boomers is maybe we're better parents than we are citizens. And as well as trying to help the next generation one by one, which is you know, completely admirable, it's not a wrong thing to do, we also need to think whether within the structures of public policy, the way we manage our economy, the way we deliver the welfare state, whether those are properly protecting the interests of the younger generation. And that's where I think there's a real important role of public policy in trying to maintain a fair balance between the generations. But what's very easy when you've got a, you know, governments doing as much as governments do in Britain today, it would be easy for some generations to capture it and others to be disadvantaged. And I'm saying, look, let's look back, let's realise that part of the social contract, I think for me the most important part of the contract, social contract, is intergenerational, and you need public policy to maintain that fairly. Well, towards the end of the book, you, you look to another generation, you look to the problem that's arising in terms of the number of people who are growing older but no longer earning, and that that particular band of people is increasing. Have you got your target wrong? Is it really the expanding pensionable-aged population, which is the real issue for the country, rather than the baby boomer cohort per se? Well, we have to be very careful what we regard as a problem or not. Living longer is good news, and it's fantastic that people can expect higher life expectancy. And again, by and large, contrary to the pessimists, these seem to be at least as much extra years of high-quality living as extra years with disability and ill health. So that's good news. Uh, now, but what I argue is that when you have contracts that are denominated with a chronological age to them, like we will pay you this money after the age of 65, even if the contract was made when people thought you might live for five or ten more years after the age of 65, but then lo and behold, by the time you get to the age of 65, you might be expected to live 15 or 20 years more. That has in reality changed significantly the real value of the promise that was made to you. And it's another reason why the baby boomers in particular have ended up owning so much of the wealth, because the pension promises made to us to be triggered when, say, you reach the age of 65, have ended up far more valuable because of changes in life expectancy. Now, that's, uh, uh, to some extent, has indeed also benefited the, the older generation, and you're right, there's a kind of very simple sort of three-generation model you can have here. It has to some extent helped the older generation. But the evidence that I've been able to assemble suggests that pension wealth, insofar as we can measure it, does again appear to be concentrated in the 45 to 65-year-old. Um, they appear to own at least half of all the pension wealth we've got in the country. And you can't take, and it would be absolutely wrong to try to take those assets off them, but you can try to make some adjustments in the, in the state pension age. And of course, my party has promised that that process of raising the state pension age should be speeded up. I think it's a very good way of getting a grip on the public finances. And it also has the, the very welcome effect of offering a fairer deal between the generations when it comes to pensions. To come back to what you were saying about baby boomers having to give something back, um, this intergenerational transfer. You looked at uh, one stage in the book about the fact that the Victorians had left these wonderful railway systems, this wonderful infrastructure, and there was some suggestion that you think we should be spending more on infrastructures away from one generation to give something back to the next. Sounds awfully like what Obama's doing in the States with TARP, it sounds awfully like FDR New Deal. Is this the policy of your party in the future as well? I, I am pro-infrastructure spending, and uh, my party, you know, some of the proposals we've made for 
new sort of planning regimes aimed at, are aimed particularly at trying to ensure that some of these big infrastructure projects come through. And while we were very early backers of a sort of high-speed train link, for example. Yes, yeah, so I, I do think that successive generations should try to leave kit behind. Mm. And we should see our country as a, as a series of exchanges between successive generations. And that even if we think that future generations will be richer, that does not remove the obligation. And the Victorians didn't build their railway stations to last for 25 years and their sewage systems to last 25 years saying, well, don't worry, the generation coming after us will be richer than we are and it doesn't matter. Then when they all crumble away, they'll have the money to replace them. And certainly the medieval church builders didn't build their churches for a short periods. They don't worry, future generations will fix something better. They left things, they wanted to endow future generations with something that would last. And I think that we have benefited from that ourselves. We've been benefited from an enormous amount of capital left for us. And we should pass that on to the next generation. And part of what's gone wrong with our country is very low levels of saving and investment. And you can think of low levels of saving and investment as a failure to maintain a, a fair balance between the generations. Absolutely. Lastly, the pinch in the title it seems to be shorthand for a warning that we face a crisis or a pinch point in all of this come around about 2030, when the problems of this baby boomer co cohort become most acute and will hit us hardest. What would be the one key thing you think we should and could do now to prepare for that pinch point? Well, one thing that's very topical is that just in the last 10 days, the government has issued um, a new set of gilts, issued debt, that matures in 2034. And uh, I suspect I may not be paying taxes in 2034, who knows what, where, what I am, um, may not be on this earth in 2034. The, but the borrowing that's being undertaken now to provide services now will be, uh, leaves a tax burden that is going to fall particularly heavily on the younger generation. And as I say, the fact it's 2034 brings this home. There is a, that, that I, I believe that, you know, that's when we're going to have um, probably some very old boomers who will be needing care. That's when, on some of the climate change forecasts, and we have to be very cautious on these nowadays, but that's when uh, we really start seeing some of the effects of climate change. Um, that's also when you know, the pressures of amount of energy that we've consumed may be felt, and I suspect we, the baby boomers, will have ended up consuming more energy in our lives than both generations before or the generations after. So if at the same time, when we face these really big global challenges, at the same time to be dumping on them a set of you know, fiscal burdens for the future as well, I think it is wrong. And, and just to finish on this point, it isn't that the baby boomers are all selfish. And in fact, one of the most interesting sort of social experiments is you get a group of people together and you say to them, imagine that you're the board of company, uh, the, imagine you're the board of directors of a forestry company and you've got a patch of woodland. Question is, and you plan to cut the woodland down this year. Now let's try out on you three reasons why you shouldn't. The first reason why you shouldn't is uh, delay cutting down the woodland because if you delay a few years, you'll increase its net present value and when you do cut it down, you'll make a bigger profit for the company. Influences a few people and appeal to rational self-interest, not much. Secondly, you say, don't cut this woodland down so that the people in the neighbourhood, people in the local community can enjoy it as an amenity. In other words, an appeal to kind of horizontal um, obligations to other people around at the moment. And again, influences some, but not much. 
Thirdly say, the only reason you've got this woodland is because previous generations didn't cut it down and left it to you to enjoy. You have a similar obligation to pass it on to future generations. That argument gets to people. That they understand. And my view is that it's that appeal to obligations between the generations that's, that's fundamental to holding a society together and to which people, whatever their age, are far more susceptible than we give them credit for. That's an interesting illustration to end on because I think a lot of woodland has been cut down to make this book. I'm told that it's already sold out from its first edition. Its second printing will be in the shop soon, so I recommend you better get there soon before we have to chop down even more woodland. Thank you, David. Thank you very much.